From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Florida athletic season shifted into overdrive this past weekend as the already crowded spring calendar added baseball to the jam-packed slate of games. But it wasn't just any basketball game taking place at Exact Tech Arena, with the court naming for Billy Donovan making it a night the sold-out crowd won't soon forget. On today's show, FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter join us to discuss a star-studded celebration of Billy D how he successfully made the jump from coaching in college to the NBA, the season-best three-game SEC winning streak for hoops, a bold beginning for baseball, a head-turning achievement for lacrosse, a splashy new assistant for football, and the latest fallout from the Astros' cheating scandal in the PAT. Then, Gator baseball broadcaster Jeff Cardozo chats with head coach Kevin O'Sullivan about their hot start at the plate, the growth he expects to see in the early part of the season, and their high-profile matchup against Miami. But first, the NBA All-Star game may have been in Chicago, but all the former Gator legends traded a trip to the swanky city for the Swamp, coming together to honor Billy Donovan and the historic naming of the court he coached them on. So to open this week's roundtable, we asked Chris and Scott to take us through the pomp and circumstance surrounding the event, starting with what it meant to have such a strong showing of Gator greats in attendance. All-Star Weekend is a huge deal, a big party for these NBA players. And yet you're talking about Brad Beal, Al Horford, Dorian Finney-Smith, a guy like Michael Frazier would be his first chance to be in an All-Star uh, Weekend being for the Houston Rockets. Chris Chioza, these guys didn't go there. They came to uh, Gainesville to hang out and to be a part of the celebration of their former coach. And uh you know, it was quite the scene. And of course, that was Saturday night. It was really a Billy Donovan celebration for the whole weekend. He came in Friday. Um, he met with Mike White. Uh, he had some words for the for the players uh, the night before the game. He uh, Friday night, they had a private unveiling of the court logo in the O-Dome. It was really, really cool. Uh, the place was empty. And he walked in there with his family. A uh, small gathering, some friends, and um, they lit up the court, peeled back the uh, the Billy Diamond court. Uh, a logo was covered. They peeled that back and unveiled that for him. And, you know, <laughs> it was really cool. He gave uh, Jeremy Foley, Scott Strickland big hugs, and they got to pose with that logo. They had a party afterwards, a reception for some family and friends then. And then, of course, the next day was it was a big deal. And, and when you think about it, the, the week uh, could not have turned out better um, for the Florida basketball program. You're talking about it. They won on the road against Texas A&M on Wednesday, so they had momentum going into the weekend. Vanderbilt coming in, Billy Donovan coming in. The team played very, very well that night, uh, beat Vanderbilt 84-66, a game where they were up 41-19 at halftime before Billy Donovan even took the court. And they handed him that microphone, lights went down. He spoke for about three minutes. It was really great. The, the ovation was what you would think would be just thunderous and um florida finished off the night with a victory and uh like i said it, it could not have gone better the you're talking about one of the one of the greatest coaches not just in florida history but college basketball history and they gave him exactly the kind of uh, ceremony and exactly the kind of of honor that 
that he deserved. And uh, Florida, you know, maybe took a cue from it. The current Florida team uh, played well, like I said, against Vanderbilt and kind of carried that over a couple of days later uh, in winning Tuesday night against Arkansas. It was a great, great night. Uh, as Chris said, really, it was a week long, uh, weekend celebration. And, you know, I've been to a lot of events at the O-Dome, and um, I think that was probably the one that uh, tops my list of just special nights in that building. You know, Billy Donovan has such a special place uh, in the minds and hearts of Gator fans, and uh, it, it was just great to see him honored that way. And Billy was humble, as you'd expect. And, uh, you know, it was it's just one of those stories that, one of those people that don't come along very often and jeremy foley said it in his um the uh, video tribute he says that, you know it's the kind of relationship that comes along with just once a generation and uh i think the weekend really summed that up in so many ways and, and just seeing those former guys come back like chris was talking about that was probably uh, one of the, the best parts for me and uh billy when he did take the microphone and start to talk he made sure that those were the first people he think because they did have other options and it just shows how much he meant to them. So a great night, great event, and the one that we won't forget anytime soon. Go back on Brad Beal's Twitter feed if you want to figure out what it meant to the guy. This is the fourth leading scorer in the NBA right now. He really um, was a guy who really enjoyed himself and, and really bounced around and saw some old people and saw some old friends of his. And I mean, this is a guy in the prime of his career, and he talked about what Billy Donovan meant to him, both as a player and as a uh, as a mentor, and I think what Brad said about how when he was being recruited, this remember this is a national player of the year, Gatorade National Player of the Year. During the recruiting of him, he told him, "You're coming here. I don't care about these accolades that you have. You're coming here. You're going to earn everything. Nothing's being given to you. If, if you think something's given to you, go somewhere else because I'm not giving you anything when you get here." Of course, Brad Beal got here. That was my first year doing this job I'm doing right now here at uh, I was Gator Zone back then, FloridaGators.com. I saw the guy every day at practice. He was kind of like a professional at the time, just the way he went about his business and took everything Billy Diamond told him to heart. And uh, he's become obviously one of the one of the best players in the NBA. And um, Brad Beal came back to thank him for that, I think. And I think he means the world to him as both, like I said, a, a mentor, a coach, and you know, a borderline, you know, second father figure. And uh, more than any other player, I think I, I you could see how much it meant to Brad Beal to be back here. And I thought that was really, really cool. Something else I found really interesting about it is if you think about when there are reunions for certain teams, like, for example, you know, when they did the 2006-2007 back-to-back championship team, you know who those guys are. It's a select group of guys from one particular moment in history. But when you do something like this, which is pretty rare to have an occasion like this, you get this cross-section of Joe Kim Noah, who, who appeared to be going for a Noah from the Bible look, uh, Al Horford, but then there's also Brad Beal, and there's also Chris Chioza. So I guess, can you just talk about collecting so many Gator greats from you know really a 20-year period and what it was like to have all of those individuals in one place at one time? Yeah, well, they were members of his first team, whether you're talking about the walk-ons, where you're talking about uh, Dan Williams. But Dimitri Hill came. He didn't even play for Billy Donovan, but he came in and he was walking around like he owned the place. It was great. Uh, you know, Billy D's giving him a hug. You know, how you doing? How you doing, Dimitri? Um, and I imagine that if Eddie Shannon wasn't uh, coaching 
Eddie Shannon would have been here. Greg Christel was on Billy Diamond's first team. And uh, uh, Greg Christel quit basketball because Billy Diamond had conversations with him about how much he loved the game. Greg Christel walked away from the game of basketball, but he's here coming back to welcome Billy Diamond back here. You could go on and on about it, but yes, the, the cross-section of, of eras, a lot of those players, whether you're talking about Matt Walsh or Torian Green, uh, Udonis Haslam are still playing basketball. Now, Udonis could have come back. I don't know why Udonis didn't, but he was part of that first team. Brent Wright, Major Parker, part of that uh, first recruiting class. Teddy Dupay, mm-hmm. um, those guys were back here, all on the court, got introduced, got a rousing ovation, second best ovation of the night. It's funny, I think the Florida basketball team got the third best ovation of the night uh, <laughs> after after the coach and the former players. But uh, to your point, absolutely. And I think that speaks to what this coach uh, means to them. And certainly uh, Billy Donovan's humility and his grace were all on display. Everyone, it's universal. You talk to whoever. And I think Rob Lanier was one of the ones who, who said it during the tribute uh, video. Billy Donovan never made it about him. And sure enough, when he took the microphone and walked out there, he talked about everybody but himself out there. And one of the last things he said, he goes, this name on the court, he goes, he looked at all the fans. He goes, your name is on this floor with me. That was pretty cool. Um, I mentioned Joe Kim Noah. And I mean, how can you not talk about Joe Kim Noah? Uh, maybe the most enigmatic athlete in Florida history. At least my my 25 to 30 years following the Gators. I can't remember anybody else quite like him. Uh, did you have a chance to talk to him at all? And, and what is he doing? Because I'm so curious to know the answer to that. He's bounced around. He like gave a few nods and what have you, but he, he, he stuck to, he stuck to his people, I would say. <laughs> but, uh, from what I understand, Joe Kim Noah is, uh, very close to signing with the team huh. and he may make a run, uh, the second half of the season. He's keeping himself in shape to a certain degree, I would think. And, um, a, a seven foot guy who knows how to play defense. And if you follow some of the stuff that's going on around the NBA, they're, they're guys being bought out now and, and playoff rosters, are being fortified with with guys who people can think can win. I think uh, Joachim Noah is going to end up on a team that is uh, trying to vie for not just a playoff spot, but uh, a serious uh, run at a title. I wouldn't be surprised if something happened there. Any other former players you had interesting conversations with, maybe things that surprised you that that people would find find noteworthy? One of the better um, conversations I had was with Dorian Finney-Smith. I mean, this is the guy who wasn't drafted. And yet he has found a niche with the Dallas Mavericks, a team that is uh, on the rise right now. He's starting for them. The Dodo that was here as a player and the Dodo that I talked to, the kid has just matured so much. And I, I always say kid when I talk to some of these because they are kids to me. But Dorian Finney-Smith now is, you know, a 27, 28-year-old man. He came back and talked about wh- what Billy meant to him also because th- there were some tough times at Dodo back then because that wasn't that far removed from when um, he lost his brother to a – to a shooting at a party in Norfolk. And it was a hard time for uh, for Doreen Finney-Smith at the time, but Billy helped him navigate that. This program helped him navigate that. Tom Williams at the Academic Center at, uh, helped him navigate that. And to see Dodo bounce around and to show the people that helped him through that, their appreciation here, because this was it wasn't just just a Billy Donovan celebration. These guys came back and saw some a lot of familiar faces from the University Athletic Association at that helped them along the way. So uh, that was really, really cool just to be reconnected with, with those people. And from Billy's standpoint, he didn't, I guarantee he didn't have enough time to see some of the people he would have liked to. Um, I actually saw him one thirty in the morning um, well after the, that game and was able to say goodbye and, you know, comment on the weekend. And he just, he just said, I'm exhausted. <laughs> and I'm sure he was because 
just seeing all the people we had. And I, like I said, I guarantee he didn't have nearly enough time to talk to some of the people that he would have liked to talk to. But um, that's the way these things are. And uh, I imagine a lot of people would have liked to see him, didn't get to see him either. But uh, like I said, what what a weekend it was, not only for him, but for the program and for uh, and for Gator Nation. I think uh, it was appropriate in all facets. Yeah, before we move on from the, the Billy conversation, as we're recording this today, the big story in the NBA is John Beeline uh, basically just wanting out of Cleveland. Uh, it's his first season. He was hugely successful at Michigan, chose to go to the NBA, and he washes out after less than a year. And that's not an unfamiliar story for a lot of really successful college coaches. Now, I know part of the story that you did, Chris, was really about Billy's second act and how he became so successful in the NBA. So I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think has made him so successful in making that jump that so many others have not been able to replicate? I kind of thought that the whole John Beeline thing at the time was a little bit of a strange fit. Uh, but uh, having said that, he he made it farther than Jerry Tarkanian did. He he lasted 20 games, I think, when he went to coach the Spurs. And talking to the players and going back to that story, I, Billy Don is a great X and O coach. But I think he also is a person who listens to people and fact finds information about stuff. Uh, uh, he had he had the basketball knowledge uh, built in. But I think it, his ability to go to his players and say, what do you like? How do you want to pick this guy up? And, and when players come to him and say, I, I, I rather do it this way than the way you're doing it. And him taking that information and weaving it into what he's doing, I, I think speaks volumes and probably uh, applies to his winning percentage, which I think is about 605 since he's been in the NBA. Now, having said all that, Certainly, it helped when your first team has uh, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and Serge Ibaka and sure. those guys on the team. But uh, you know he's winning at a at a commensurate winning percentage right now um, with a rebuilt team. He's basically said he he's had five different teams is the way he way he built to it. Now Russell Westbrook was on four of them, and that helped. But I don't think it's any coincidence that here's the remade Oklahoma uh, City Thunder with a future Hall of Famer in Chris Paul. And Billy Donovan still winning, even though it started poorly. Six and eleven, remember, is how that team started. But since the uh, All Star break, excuse me, since Thanksgiving, they have the fourth best record in the NBA. And obviously, the the coach and his star player have something to do with that. Well, bringing things back to today, and you mentioned this earlier, Chris. I mean, this sort of dovetailed with a good week for Mike White's team. And and we've talked about how tenuous some of those are where it seems like there's momentum and then it it just dissolves. But this is three straight wins now during the the part of the run where they really had to collect those to build that resume. Before we talk about what's coming up next, what do you think has worked so well in these last three victories that started at Texas A&M? I'd say ball movement more than anything else. Um, The ball movement at A&M was the best it's been all season. Um, it carried over to the Vanderbilt game. Now, um, Florida played some really good defense in the first half against Vanderbilt to get out to a 22-point halftime lead. Uh, defense wasn't so good in the second half. Vanderbilt started chipping away at that. It went from a 31-point lead or 32-point lead down to 18 or so. But uh, I just think that guys are figuring some things out. What best suits how they play as individuals? Guys are making shots also. Uh, Noah Locke's ability to hit threes, he's the far and away the highest percentage three-point shooter in the SEC right now at, I think it's about 52% now. That opens things up for some lanes. So what what Keontae Johnson did uh, in, in the Arkansas game, just getting to the free throw line 17 times, uh, Eric Musselman pointed it out after the game, seven shots, 24 points. I mean, that's highly efficient stuff. 
Uh, in fact, it's he's the he's the fourth player in the last 25 years to uh, to get at least 24 points on on seven or fewer shots. Pretty amazing. Um, Andrew Nemhard figuring some things out in terms of how to pace. He's always been a good pace player, Adam, but his ability to pace and now get guys off balance a little bit and attack the basket and above all else finish. If you go back a year and a half, he wasn't finishing like this early on in his freshman career, even midseason as a, as a freshman last season. He's getting to the basket and, and finishing around there. Um, the Gators were – they didn't go in the tank when Kerry Blackshear went to – he had two fouls after two minutes. He had four fouls with 10 minutes to go in the game. Uh, he, he hardly played in the Arkansas game, and they found ways to, to win that game. So I think some identity issues, some individual identity issues are bigger, are being figured out, uh, role assignments, and maybe some acceptance on that front. I mean, Omar Payne had a really good game against Vanderbilt, okay? He didn't have a great game against Arkansas, and Florida did what they had to do. He sat. Uh, and how is Omar Payne going to react to that? He's going to react to that better now than he did earlier in the season. And I'm giving just an example there. Jason Jatobo played very well the last two games. This is a 6'11", 290-pound guy who's starting to figure things out a little bit. He's not anywhere close to what he's going to be a year from now, but he's so much better than he was a month ago. So you're never what you are in college basketball. You're never the team you are in December. And as here we go, as John Gruden say, you get better, you get worse. Okay. <laughs> and I think this team is getting better, not getting worse. Now, having said that, they got quite the uh, assignment to go on the road this weekend, go to Kentucky, which just went into LSU and won a huge game and now has a two game cushion uh, in first place in the Southeastern Conference standings. But Florida is in third place and that's a much better place than they than they could have been. This is the first time they've won three straight games in the SEC this year. They've shot 50% or better in three straight SEC games, working things a little bit, finding some things out. And they could have knuckled under to the adversity uh, in Arkansas coming back from 19 points down to twice get within two points in that game uh, Tuesday night. They didn't. They finished the game and they leaned on their best players who they had available at the time. Keontae Johnson, Andrew Nemhart, and that's part of the identity of this team right now. You know, it's funny. Anytime you have to preview a Kentucky game, you really have to start from scratch because the roster is almost completely turned over every single year. So can you tell us about this Kentucky team and what challenges they're going to present at Rupp Arena? Well, this Kentucky team doesn't fit that little profile that you just put for them. I mean, you think about it. Emmanuel quickly came back. Ashton Hagens came back. Uh, the player who is causing the most uh, rumblings in the SEC right now, Nick Richards, the 6'11", 250-pound uh, forward, he's a junior. And these are McDonald's All-Americans. Usually they're one and dones, but this is a he's got a little different team. Now he has Tyrese Maxey is the is the best freshman right now, but Emmanuel quickly is a sophomore who made that turn and he's scoring 15 points a game now and shooting really well. So this this isn't like the John Calipari's last few teams, but what we always know about the John Calipari version and the business model with Kentucky is they're always better in February, March than they were in November. Remember, they lost at home to Evansville, a team that's in last place in their in their conference right now. Mm. Um, they were number one in the country and lost to Evansville. I think there were some fans in in BBN that were probably uh, uh, in a bad way. In fact, you know, when you when you think about it back then, but they figured some stuff out. They're eleven and two in the league. They're they're on their way to probably another conference title. But uh, you know, Florida in history, ten wins in Lexington. 
in in the history of, of of the program. So it's quite the the task to think to go up there. But Florida's going to have some other games after that one to uh, make some hay. They play next week at home against LSU. They're on the road next weekend against Tennessee. They play Kentucky at home to end the season. Those are all going to be quad one opportunities to further themselves there. Right now, if the season ended right now, and it never does, they're in the tournament. But they have a chance. I'd say right now they're a nine or a ten seed, maybe mm-hmm. a nine. They have a chance to work their way up into the bracket a little bit. And, of course, anything can happen. The SEC tournament is going to be wide open this year. Kentucky will be favored. Who Kentucky ends up playing, like I said, that's a, that's a wide open situation. People may say Auburn. You look back a month ago, Florida beat Auburn by 22 points here. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, eight or nine. At the moment, Joe Lenardi has them as a nine seed in the uh the ultimate bracketology that most people subscribe to. So we'll see how much movement there's going to be on that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, one team that is just getting underway is Gator Baseball. And we saw Gator Baseball get underway last weekend in, in a very a significant way, specifically with the bats, Scott. And we talked about it before the season, and we're going to hear from Kevin O'Sullivan here in just a few minutes as well. But they know that this year's team, it's going to be built a lot on the backs of their offense. Yeah, I mean, this is an offense that is young, uh, the everyday lineup. You know, they started two true freshmen in the opening series against Marshall and shortstop Josh Rivera and uh, D.H. Nathan Hickey, who can also catch. Uh, But both of those guys responded well in their first college experience. And then they showed great resiliency last year with the pitching staff that underperformed. Uh, It was an offense that, you know, had to carry the Gators during a lot of parts of the season. And they did enough to get to the NCAA tournament. But obviously, the storyline around this team is going to be that offense. But pitching improvement has to come along and help them out. And I think when you look at the opening series against Marshall, uh, the two starters who they're going to really rely heavy on, Tommy Mason, Jack Lethwich, both guys came out and performed well in, in their first starts of the season. And then after that, you know, Nick Pogue had a rough outing on Sunday, uh, but they came back with the true freshman, Hunter Barco, who is going to be, you know, he's going to get some starts midweek and maybe even Sunday eventually. But uh, if they can get consistent pitching from from those four guys in the, in the, at the starter spots and then the bullpen do what it did in those uh, first four games, the pitching uh, was improved. If it can perform near that level, Adam, uh, with the offense that you mentioned that in your lead-in, uh, this Florida team could be very good this year. But, you know, we're, what, four games in, so first week of the season, so it's still a lot lot of answers to to be discovered. But I do think that it was a nice start for the, the, for the Gators. When if you talk about, you know, big opportunities early on in the year to uh, boost that resume, uh, how about number one versus number two, Florida Miami this weekend? That that's some old school stuff, Scott. In terms of that rivalry, when it used to be really really big, it seems to be mirroring that this year. That is, I mean, if you follow uh, these two programs and like college baseball, you know, Florida Miami don't like each other now. Being one and two in the polls uh, doesn't get much better than that for an early season series. You know, these schools have met for years and years. Usually the first true test for each is an early season series. They go back and forth. Last year it was in Gainesville, this year down in Miami. Uh, So that's going to be a great opportunity for uh, the Gators to put into action, I guess, some of the results they've gotten uh, the first week of the season. Now you ratchet up with a a Miami program that is 
I think, you know, really on the bounce back, you got to remember it was only two, three years ago when their amazing streak in incident away appearances ended like after 40 years or 40 some years, I think Mm -hmm. Uh, they went through a transition period there after Jim Morris. And now they've clearly, uh, I think, rebuilt the program in a way that they're one of the, the teams that people are talking about for potential national title at Florida. Uh, now, if you go down to Miami and, and win that series, suddenly Florida is going to be in the spotlight. <laughs> a re, kind of a revamped Florida team. Uh, if they go down there and do something special, suddenly the expectations uh, get ramped up on this, and it'll be a, it'll be just interesting to see what goes on down there and how the Gators do respond in that environment. And while we're talking about impressive performances on the road, uh, you know, there's a lot of sports that we don't get a chance to talk about every week because of how busy the spring is. But lacrosse went to Maryland and did something incredibly impressive, broke a very, very long streak up there. Yeah, that was that was one that surprised me, Adam. I mean, Maryland, number one in the country, hasn't lost at home in 86 games. So that was a huge win for Florida. If you were on social media Saturday, if if you were able to pull away from the Billy Donovan celebration here in Gainesville, uh, the Gators, uh, you could tell their reaction. Uh, they got a lot of attention on social media because of their reaction after that win and knowing what it meant to the program. And, and this is a this is a Florida team that they're in the top 20, as they always usually are under Amanda O'Leary. But they lost a lot of players from last year, uh, a lot of new faces, a lot of players on that team that Gator fans are still really trying to get to know, don't know much about. Uh, the two that re- they got to know more about, Shannon Cavanaugh, the junior. I mean, she's she's been here. If you follow the lacrosse program, you know about her. But she wins a national player of the week this week after the performance up in Maryland. And then the goaltender, Carolyn Resnick. I mean, she's a freshman. She wins freshman of the week nationally. First time in the program's history that they had a, a player win national player of the week and a freshman win the freshman honor. So, that just kind of tells you about the attention that Florida got by going up to Maryland and upsetting the Terps. And and now uh, they, they don't have a home game until this weekend, so they've had a, a, a week to sit on it. And, and you're always interested to see how a young team responds to that kind of success early. And I think that's what Amanda Leary and her staff are, uh, will be watching closely uh, this weekend. So, uh, But a huge moment for Florida early in the season in lacrosse. Yeah, no question. Congratulations to uh, to that squad for pulling off something pretty special. Um, one note before we move to our PAT, uh, just a, a quick one on football here, Scott. I know that I'd say about a, a month ago, everyone thought that the uh, the coaching carousel had stopped turning for good. And then there was one extra little spin on it, uh, and it's led Florida to add a, an impressive coach to their staff, especially when it comes to a history of recruiting. Yeah, Adam, I don't know if the coaching carousel ever stops. <laughs> it does. You're right. Nowadays. It keeps going. Just, even yeah. if it's just eking along a little bit, it's still moving slightly. Yeah. Somebody does something usually that's stupid and falls off and uh, you know during the offseason. So that's just the nature of college football at this point. But yeah, I mean, you know, when Larry Scott left to go to Howard, uh, it caught a few people by surprise, but at the same time, he, he'd been wanting to be a head coach. He got an opportunity. And when Larry left, that had created a position on staff and, and Dan Mullen, uh, you know, Tim Brewster is here. If you've been following him on Twitter, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's getting right after it. I think he's already maybe the most active Gators football coach ever on Twitter. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's got a great reputation in college football as a, a recruiter that can close 
And uh, there's nothing. I mean, he had great success at Florida State uh, when he was there with Jimbo Fisher. He was at North Carolina most recently. Not the kind of level of program that Florida and Florida State have been over the years. But uh, that was a big addition by Mullen in the situation that was presented after Scott's departure. And, and it certainly has riled up the Gator fans on social media because those who follow college football recruiting uh, know Tim Brewster's reputation very well in the in that domain. And so he, he's come in and uh, making some waves. And uh, obviously you won't see the full impact uh, for a few months on until the uh, 2021 class starts to take shape next December. Uh, but at the same time, uh, good pickup and just added, a, I guess, a jolt to uh, to the Gators coaching staff in offseason that we necessarily didn't see coming a, a month ago. Yeah, no question. And while we're talking about jolts, that should lead us right into our PAT because, man, Major League Baseball and I'd say the sports world in general have just been absolutely shaken with what has happened in the fallout of the Houston Astros cheating scandal. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and I think the question I presented to you then was, what is and is not considered cheating relative to gamesmanship, etc.? Um, that ship has, has long since sailed. This has now become a full-blown PR nightmare for Major League Baseball and the Houston Astros. Um, I, I work in PR, and I'm not even sure what the answer is to this question, so I, I, I leave it to you guys. But what should and what can Major League Baseball do to try and contain the fallout from a scandal that just seems to be picking up more and more steam and momentum as it goes forward? Well, I think the first thing that I would say uh, is someone should take Rod Manfred, the commissioner, and perhaps go to the doctor because he's obviously got foot and mouth disease. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and I read that the other day from Jeff Pisano, ESPN, and it made me laugh when I read it because I think he's exactly right. Uh, baseball is burning is was kind of the theme of the, the column he wrote. And this was Sunday after Manfred's, what I would call, Chris, ill-fated press conference uh, when he said he referred to the World Series ring as a piece of metal. And then you just saw players one after another come out and, I thought Eric Turner, the Dodgers, said it best. You know, he says, guess what that trophy is called that teams win when they win the World Series? It's called a commissioner's trophy. Maybe he should have thought about that a little bit before he kind of alluded to, hey, is not that big of a deal if we had to just take a piece of metal away? I think there's just a lot of angry – and it really is – you know, this was a player-driven uh, scandal to what I understand it at this point. And I think – what you're seeing is now players being angry that there was no, I guess, punishment for the Astros players. You know, the manager, A.J. Hinch, the GM, obviously Carlos Beltran and uh, Alex Cora got caught up in this. Uh, but really, no players have faced any kind of uh, punishment. And that just sends really a, such a negative message to other players around baseball and uh i you know you asked i think what can they do right now i think rob manfred's uh gonna have to circle back and and create some goodwill with the players because right now he has none and when you don't have that as commissioner and you're viewed as the really the most important administrative voice in the game that that's a problem chris don't you think i'm not a pr expert obviously but I think so much of this, it seems, could have been handled earlier. 
Okay. So when this all was announced and obviously when it was announced, we were like, Whoa, that seemed really, really strict, really, really hammer coming down. When you think that the suspended for a year and uh, for the, for the GM and the coach who, or excuse me, the manager that ended up getting fired uh, almost within an hour of that announcement. But what should have happened from there was should have tried some of those players out then instead of making this a, uh, uh, the story, from the day they set foot on in, in training camp, it just seems like now you're reacting to it, and you're reacting to it badly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People want to be excited about the game, and you know, spring training—it's a cliche, but it's true. It's all about hope and renewal. It's that one time of year where, no matter which team you're rooting for, you have some hope. But right now, this this dwarfs any kind of talk about which team might be the surprise team this year or lineup uh, competitions around the league. I mean, this is the story and it's not going to go away. Yeah. And every day it's, it's someone else. Sorry. Who, who are we getting today? Oh, oh, we're getting Mike Trout today. <laughs> like Mike Trout, like blowing up the commissioner, blowing up the Astros. Uh, Nick Markakis, the Braves said that these guys, all the players need a beating. And that's what, what does that even mean? <laughs> I mean it probably means a beaning is what it means. And, and like Scott said, it was player driven, but if I'm not mistaken, the, the, the way the collective bargaining agreement is written and the way this whole investigation was done, these players were brought in and just given immunity if they told the truth. And uh, that, I guess it was the commissioner's hands were tied relative to what he could do um, with players. But, um, you know, I, and I think some serious consideration should have been given to the word vac- vacate. Mm hmm. Well, it still could, right? I mean, at this point, they, they could still, that could be the answer is to say, because doesn't that also address the issue of the, quote, piece of metal? If you say, no, this is meaningful and we're taking it away. Yeah. And that's, and that's reacting to your own screw up. Sure. And which is never, which is never good. But I mean, uh, Manfred's on, I mean, he, his, his backtracking is getting, <laughs> Just my goodness gracious, uh, I, I'm sure he can't wait for a, a spring training game, just one to happen, yeah. because just to, just just to change the narrative. But I, I'm not sure how much it's going to change, because all the way up to when the Astros play a game, whether it's a spring training game uh, or a regular season game, people are going to be talking about this. And every team they play that they haven't played yet, the story is going to, con- to continue. Mm. Uh, and every time they face a player, who may have been impacted by this uh, before, a team that may have been impacted this way, the story is going to continue. So I don't know if that can change. I don't know if anything they could have done uh, could have changed it, but certainly the the cavalier way that the commissioner kind of rolled this out and kind of dismissed it, and certainly the way the Astros initially, especially their owner, what did he say? We would have won it anyway. Uh, I mean, that's probably not the, the best way they, they could have gone about this. And I, I know it's not the best way they could have gone about it. So thing is, we'll probably be having another PAT conversation about this. Uh, I would say maybe even two more before uh, before the University of Florida uh, athletic season comes to an end. Well, we covered a lot of ground this week. Uh, thank you guys for giving us the, the full array of what's going on in Gator Nation and beyond in the world of sports. And again, encourage everyone to check out their content at FloridaGators.com and find them on Twitter at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. Thanks so much, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. In a season sure to bring many firsts for some of Florida's budding young stars, the overarching theme is about finality as the Gators play their last year in McKeithen Stadium. For example, the last opening day has already come and gone, and many more milestones will follow as the season snakes its way through June. 
Jeff Cardozo caught up with Kevin O'Sullivan to discuss the road to come and more, but began by getting his thoughts on their opening weekend sweep of Marshall. A little chilly on Friday night, but we had great crowds the entire weekend, and obviously, you know, this this year being the last year in McKeitha Stadium, we're, you know, we're excited to be a part of something of this magnitude, and I thought we played well this weekend. You know, you never quite know what to expect opening weekend, especially opening night, but I thought that our guys um, swung the bats extremely well. Uh, we had an idea going into the season that, you know, the strength of our team might be, you know, the length of our lineup and, and the depth we have offensively, and I thought we played really good defense for the most part, and we got two really good starts, you know, from, from Tommy and Jack, and had an opportunity to get some young people in there, you know, to finish off the game on Saturday and Sunday. So we've still got a lot of work to do. We're still hoping to get Trey Vanderweed back at some point here in the next week or so to solidify, you know, our bullpen. And we still need to figure out the third starter. That's probably, you know, be a little bit fluid at this point. But overall, well, we're pleased with, with, with how we played this weekend. And, and obviously we've got a full slate of games, you know, coming this week with going down up Coral Gables to play Miami this weekend. So our pitching depth will get challenged a little bit this week, but uh, we're certainly looking forward to the challenge. Sure that uh, everybody that, that showed up Friday night or tuned into the radio broadcast and they see Kirby McMullen, the three hole, like what the heck is going on? But I know that's got to excite you. And, and he's worked really, really hard throughout his time here. And, you know, I think he, just like a couple other guys, earned that start in the lineup opening night. He did. And he's hit ever since the fall. And I've told this story over and over to our team because I, I want the message to get sent home. But he's, you know, he's, he's one of those guys that kind of waited his turn for three years. He's always been a really good teammate. He's been exceptional in the dugout always putting his teammates first and obviously he's getting an opportunity to go out there day in and day out now and um you know and stay in the lineup and i looked up there yesterday during the game he's hitting over 700 you know for the first three games so i'm just glad he got off to a good start because obviously he's 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 earning the opportunity to, to play day in and day out which he hadn't had to a chance to do the first three years so we're excited that he's off to a really good start another guy that uh, got off to a good start maybe a little scary oh for his first six austin langworthy seems like he always starts off somewhat sluggish but really nice to see him get a couple of hits there they're late on saturday and, and keep going on sunday because he's going to be a big part of this lineup yeah, he certainly is and he's one of the very few seniors that we have you know on our roster we you know we don't have many of those guys come back in their senior year because they you know sign a professional contract but obviously he get i think getting the first couple hits on saturday night kind of Took some of the pressure off him a little bit, and obviously he, you know, he really, really put a charge in, you know, into the home run to right field to tie the game up in the bottom half of the first. So, you know, he's he's off to a good start, and we're we're awfully excited about that as well. And then uh, the rest of the lineup, you guys were so young last year, and, and all the ups and downs, but the the Calilaos and the Actons and, and all these guys that really got a lot of significant at bats as freshmen. You know, do you tend to go with that trend? You know, hey, there's a pretty big jump from freshman to sophomore year. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, there's experience can you know come in a, in a positive way or a negative way, and and either way, you've got to you know learn from your mistakes, and you got to learn from the positives, and and also obviously the negatives, but. The, the maturation from the freshman year to sophomore year is probably the biggest jump that you'll see in someone's career. And obviously a lot of those guys had, had opportunities to, you know, play last year an awful lot and, and should obviously draw from their experience. So then when you, you go with the pitching staff using that same message, gosh, there, there was so many young guys that, that were freshmen and Specht and Lucci and Scott and, you know, Pogue and, and all these guys, you can go on and on. So what's been the difference really in, in the offseason that you saw from them, maybe at the tail end of the year throughout the summer to, to what's happened now? I think the biggest jump I've seen some, from some of these sophomore pitchers is just a little bit more consistency. It's not the up and down, you know, one good outing, one bad outing. It's it's been more consistent, you know, positive outings and, you know, and a lot, a lot of that comes with, you know, maturity and, 
self-confidence and that type of thing. So we've got some depth, but we, you know, we're certainly not a finished product by no means, but we've got a long way to go, but certainly off to a good start. And you mentioned this earlier, the, the two guys at the top of this rotation, you've mentioned it to me, 1A, 1B, because they're somewhat interchangeable. But, you know, Tommy and Jack, now the junior year, certainly a big year for those guys. And, and it looked like they, they showcased some different stuff from a year ago in that first start. Yeah, Tommy's start was a little bit uncharacteristic because he didn't have feel for his curveball and didn't need to use his change very much, which is a really improved pitch. Mm -hmm. But it was a little chilly, and he had a little bit of a hard time gripping that, that curveball. But once he starts, you know, throwing that in there with his hard slider, you know, he's got some different different off-speed pitches that he can go to and, and slow the ball down just a little bit more. And obviously, Jack was outstanding. You know, he had a really good mix going on Saturday night and located to both sides of the plate and, and got himself in a couple situations where uh, maybe last year he may have tried to, you know, throw – throw his way out of a situation rather than pitch. And I thought he handled, when he was confronted with some adversity, I think he handled it really well. And then, you know, you still have really, you haven't been in a game yet to, to decide the closer and different things there. But when, when you look at that role, what are some of the uh, the options you could use there? I think we're just going to do the righty-lefty thing at this point and try to go with some older guys. The, the idea is to use Trey um, in that role once we get him back. But right now it's probably going to be more of a trial and error type of thing and, and just go with the best guy that's available that particular night. Yeah, uh, great freshman class, uh, recruiting class as high as number one in the country. You know, you continue to to get studs here, and we saw a couple in the in the lineup that that opening weekend. Nathan Hickey, what, I think four hits opening weekend, and Rivera gets a home run and, and does some damage out there. So you got to uh, like those young guys too. I do, I do. I, I really like the way that both of them have matured and and have gotten better as 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 in the time they've been here. And you know, Hunter Barco. You know, Brandon Sprout, you know, Ryan Kabarkas, you know, Tyler Nesbitt. You know, we've had a bunch of guys, you know, Nick Ficarado on opening night, you know, walk on. Yeah. So we've we've got some younger guys that we're trying to do is try to ease them in and as much as possible put them in some non-pressure situations and kind of build off their confidence, you know, and just kind of go from there. When you look at just the production opening weekend and Brady Smith doesn't start the, the first two games. He comes in, hits a couple of home runs. It's just, there's a lot of guys, different things that are interchangeable, but I'm sure as, as a coach and, and this entire coaching staff, that, that's a good problem to have. Yeah, it is. And, but it'll, it'll all work its way out in due time. I mean, but it is nice to have a guy like Brady who's, who's played an awful lot for us, obviously his first two years and, and, and make the most of his opportunity on Sunday. So um, we do have some depth and we've got a lot of different things that we're going to try and, and see what the right, mix is but we'll we'll continue to you know tinker with it and obviously i think in due time you know it'll it'll all work its way out as, as we sit here in your office you, you look out there on that, that right field wall you see all the times that you guys have been to omaha and I'm, I'm sure you know last year was you know it was difficult for you guys just with that expectation and everything there so what's been some of the things that, that you guys have done throughout the off season just to to really make it known that you know hey that, that is at that expectation and we got to get back to that point well i mean there's to be honest with you, Jeff, we haven't really talked a whole lot about it. You know, the expectation is there. It, it doesn't need to be brought up over and over. Everybody, you know, when they sign up to come to school here, I think it's a foregone conclusion yeah. that, you know, that we expect to challenge for a national championship and win SEC championship. So it's not something we talk a whole lot about, to be honest with you, because it, I think it's, it's, it's already known. And obviously last year was a rough year for us. But I, once again, you know, I'm trying to draw from the positives that we had last year and help those guys get over the – 
you know, learning curve as far as being a little bit more consistent. And I think I've seen a lot of that recently. Yeah, certainly have. And, you know, I'm sure you're looking forward to uh, this weekend as well, going down uh, facing a Miami team that's very highly touted. You know, that place is, is always a tough place to play. You guys have always had a lot of success against our Hurricanes. But early in the season, this will be a nice test for you guys. Yeah, it certainly will. I mean, this is the best team they've had in quite some time. They got three really good starters that they like. You got an older kid at the back end of the bullpen named Fetterman. And, you know, they took their lumps a couple of years ago because they had a bunch of freshmen in the lineup and that type of thing. But they're certainly, they're certainly a very, very talented team. And, and in my opinion, that's probably, this is probably the most talented roster they've had um, in quite some time. So it'll be a huge challenge for us. Um, but we're looking forward to it. And, you know, we're both going to be highly ranked. And it'll be, you know, it'll be a fun atmosphere. But once again, you know, it's, it's, it's going to come down to the same old stuff. It's going to come down to who pitches better, who makes the big pitches when they go to the bullpen. And, and who can string together some, some quality of bats. And it's really that simple. So the game of baseball is not going to change, um, but it should be a very competitive series. And this league hasn't changed, I'm sure, you know, as, as you look throughout the, the, the entire year, you see what Arkansas and Kersat did opening weekend and just the, that gauntlet for, for 30 games. It's, uh, it's always a grind playing the, the best of the best week in and week out. It is. And I think this year, especially, there's upwards to like nine or 10 pitchers that pitch on Friday nights in this league that, have a chance to be first round type arms. So everybody's got a, it seems like this year, everybody's got a, at least one, you know, first round arm. So I don't know if I'm, from the high end pitching side of it, I don't know if I've ever seen it this deep in the league, but the league's always tough. And, and you know, I've, I've always said it's not who you play, it's when you play them, you know, because everybody's capable of beating anybody on any given weekend. But, you know, teams do go through some tough stretches where they play better you know, or not play as well, you know, as they'd like, or you catch a team at a point where they maybe have a couple injuries and that type of thing. So it never changes. I mean, the league's extremely, extremely difficult, but, um, you know, obviously we take it one game at a time. I know a lot of people are excited to have Gator Baseball back. I know uh, you're ready to keep uh, getting after it and appreciate the time. All right. Thanks, Jeff. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to visit FloridaGators.com for all the latest news in the orange and blue, including scores, schedules, and more. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.